Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Again, if you're new with us, we welcome you. Just want to let you know that we have begun a study in John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we are currently at the end of chapter 1. We'll finish that chapter today. But uh, in this section of John's Gospel, Jesus is beginning to invite or to call men to follow him by becoming his disciples. We have uh, called this section from verses 35 to 51, the invitation of Jesus. Of course, it has a broader appeal than just the men he called in John 1. It applies to all men and women who he is calling to become his disciples and so on. But we've subtitled this section, verses 35 to 51, the requirements of discipleship. Now let's pick it up in verse 35. Again, the next day Jesus stood with two of his, I'm sorry, the next day John stood, John the Baptist, uh, with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus, he, as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? Let me stop there. Now, when John the Baptist introduced two of his disciples, John and Andrew, to Jesus as the Lamb of God, that's calling Jesus the Messiah, basically, we read in 37, verse 37 that they started to follow Jesus, kind of at a distance. Uh, they weren't making a formal commitment yet. They're kind of following at a distance. It's interesting. Might want to become a part of this man's ministry, that kind of thing. And when Jesus turns and sees them following him, he said to them, what do you seek? Now, we could take that in a very light, superficial way and interpret that to mean, hey, guys, what do you want? Or we could look at it maybe from a little deeper perspective, which I think Jesus was ultimately saying. He sees these guys kind of following at a distance and turns and says to them, basically, what do you, why do you want to follow me? Why do you want to follow me? I mean, what are you looking for? What do you hope to get from following me? Important questions, I think, because many follow Jesus today, not because they love him or because they want to really serve him. It's because they love themselves, and they look at Jesus as a means to an end. And guys, the end is primarily earthly blessings and material prosperity. Look, as we have said before, it's not wrong to ask the Lord to meet your needs, heal your body, or bless you and your family. Nothing wrong with that. The problem comes when people only follow Jesus for what they can get from him. You know, the temporal blessings they think will make them happy. As we speak right now, there are many people in churches across our country who are followers of Jesus, quote unquote. If you'd ask them, are you a follower of Christ? They'd say, no doubt, oh yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. But really, guys, most of these folks have no clue what's really involved in that decision to follow Christ or what's involved in the cost to themselves for making such a decision. You know, Jesus would later lay out the cost of and requirements of two discipleship in the Gospel of Matthew. Why don't you turn to Matthew 16? This is a very important subject, one I think that many Christians don't really understand or take way too lightly. I know many of Jesus' own disciples took this too lightly. At one time, he looked at them and began to thin the ranks out a little bit, saying, you know, 
why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things I tell you? I mean, just because you're following Jesus going to church doesn't mean anything if you're not really, uh, if he's not really your Lord, which is not a title, it's, excuse me, it's not a name, it's a title for the person who has control of your life. But in Matthew 16, Jesus turns to his disciples and he lays out for them the costs and the requirements of true discipleship. He said in verse 24, Matthew 16, 24, he said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, or his, her cross, obviously, and follow me. Now, guys, in this one verse, Jesus teaches on the kind of commitment it takes to be a true disciple of his. First of all, it begins with a desire to follow him, obvious but basic. If anyone desires, he said, to come after me. In other words, it's your choice. God's not forcing anyone to become a disciple of Christ. It's your choice, all right? You have to make that choice for yourself, basically what you're going to do about Jesus. He said that in Matthew 22, all right? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Everyone is confronted with that basic question. Jesus Christ was a real person. He walked the earth. He said a lot of incredible things. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He was crucified. On the third day, he rose again. Who do you think he is, and what are you going to do about him? Ignore him to your own peril. But most people acknowledge who he is and what he did, but for some reason don't make the commitment to follow him fully or at all. Second, it involves becoming a disciple and involves self-denial. He said it clearly. Let him or her deny themselves. Guys, listen. Self-denial, as Jesus taught it, does not involve denying yourself things as much as it is or it means denying your self-authority, your own authority over your life. This is what I believe was behind this statement because he goes on to connect it to taking up the cross. He's saying, look, it's a, you know, people think Christianity is all about what they can't have. All right? Primarily, God doesn't want me to have any fun. All right? I don't want to become a Christian because I can't have any... You Christians have to go to church. You have to pray. You have to you know, do all these things. I don't want to do that. It's not fun. Let me tell you something. Before I became a Christian, I would have thought the same thing. And, and I did, although I grew up in, in, in the Catholic Church. But, you know, church was an obligation. It was a duty. It wasn't fun. Once I received Christ and the Holy Spirit moved inside, okay, I don't have to go to church. I get to go to church. I don't have to read the Bible. I get to read the Bible. I don't have to pray. I get to pray. It's a whole different ballgame. One that you won't understand, a life you can't comprehend unless the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Now, we can fix that today. All right? You can receive Christ and walk out of here a spirit-filled child of God with all the power and blessings and joy of God now rooted in your heart. But look, people have all kinds of misconceptions about what it means. Again, taking up the cross primarily means denying you are the master of your life to let Jesus be the master. A cross, and many people define having a cross or taking up the cross a lot of different ways. Let me just clarify some of the misconceptions. A cross is not having an unsaved husband. It doesn't mean having a nagging wife or a domineering mother-in-law. Having to carry your cross does not have anything to do with a physical handicap or even some incurable disease that you have to live with. I mean, over the years, I've heard people make all kinds of statements about what it means to take up your cross. Oh, my cross is my unsaved husband. You don't know what I have to live with. All right? 
My cross, oh, it's my mother-in-law, okay? This woman, you can't believe that. No, fine. You may think that's your cross. It has nothing to do with what Jesus said about taking up the cross. To take up one's cross, guys, simply means to be willing to pay any price for Christ's sake. It's the, it's the willingness to endure shame, embarrassment, reproach, rejection, persecution, and listen, even martyrdom for his sake. I think one pastor said it well when he said, and I quote, Christ does not call disciples to himself to make their lives easy and prosperous, but to make them holy and productive. Willingness to take up his cross is a mark of the true disciple. Those who make initial confessions of their desire to follow Jesus Christ, but refuse to accept hardship or persecutions, are characterized as the false fruitless souls who are like rocky soil with no depth. They wither and die under the threat of the reproach of Christ. Many people want a no-cost discipleship, but Christ offers no such option, end quote. Guys, true discipleship is following in the steps of Jesus, living the life that he lived. I'll read these to you. You can write the references down. 1 John 2.6, He who says he abides in him, in Christ, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. If you call yourself a Christian, you ought to be walking as Christ walked, how he lived. Matthew 7.21, Jesus himself said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I do always those things that please the Father. Now, if you're going to follow Christ, that's going to be your heart and my heart. And then John 10.27, we could look at dozens of these. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they what? Follow me. Nobody can claim to be a Christian who is not following Christ. We don't always follow him perfectly. I understand that. But you ought to be going in the same general direction. Now, Jesus going one way and you're going this way saying, praise the Lord, I'm a believer. You know, cause, why? Because I go to church and so on. No. you got to be following where Jesus was going. Now, look, I don't know what was in the hearts of John and Andrew that day. When they started to follow Jesus kind of at a distance, and he turned to them and said, what do you seek? I don't know what was in their hearts. I really believe because they went ahead and became full-fledged disciples, their hearts were sincere. We know they responded in verse 38 when he said, guys, what do you seek? They said, Rabbi, which means it's a teacher. Where are you staying? Interesting. He said, what do you seek? They said, where are you staying? See, in those days, the disciple would live with their, their uh, teacher, their rabbi. So they were saying to him, well, Lord, we uh, heard a lot about you, and um, we believe that you could very well be the Messiah, and we really are contemplating becoming officially your disciples. But we're not sure yet. Can we kind of follow you home, hang out with you today, and ask questions? And, and that's perfectly fine, okay? They asked, where are you staying? Jesus responded, come and see they came home with him, spent the day, it says, and no doubt talked to him about many things. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak, that would be John the Baptist, and followed him, Jesus, followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Uh, one of the two. The other was John, who became John the Apostle. But when John the Baptist said to two of his disciples, John and Andrew, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, then uh, one of them, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he went and found his brother Simon 
It said to him, verse 41, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Messiah, the Hebrew, Mashiach, and then uh, the Greek Christos, both mean the same thing, uh, anointed one. The one that God said was coming to fix this, the mess that man had started in this world at the, in the Garden of, of Eden. So they asked, where are you staying? And he responded, come and see. And so uh, Andrew went and got Peter and brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now, as we've already pointed out, Andrew was Simon Peter's younger brother, and he was a real soul winner. In fact, every time his name appears in the Gospels, he's always seen bringing somebody to Jesus. That was his heart. He was always bringing people to Jesus. Now, he was doing it literally. We do it figuratively. But he, was, he had a heart to bring people to Jesus. He was a real soul winner. And so he brings Simon, his brother, to Jesus. Simon, the word means shifting or unstable. And Jesus sees him, knows who he is, and renames him Cephas, which is Aramaic for a stone. Now, guys, Peter was not a stone. He was not, you know, a rock, you know. Uh, somebody has said that, you know, Peter thought he was Rocky Johnson. What do you mean? Oh, Rock, you know, Rocky, son of John Johnson. You know, I'm Rocky Johnson. He, Peter thought he was Rocky Johnson the day, the day Jesus said, you're all going to deny me tonight, tonight, sometime, you know, for the, the rooster crows. Peter said, these guys might deny you. I'm Rocky Johnson. I'll never deny you, Lord. Well, you found out different, okay? And don't ask me where that's in the Bible. Is it? You won't find Rocky Johnson in your concordance, but I'm just throwing it out to you. But, but my point is, Cephas or, you know, was a name that Peter would grow into. None of us are what God wants us to become the moment we get saved. But by his power and grace, we will grow into the person he wants us to be. Peter was not a rock at this point. He would go on to be a rock. He would grow into a real leader, somebody who really, was he perfect? No, he blew it. But he loved the Lord passionately and went on to become a great man of God. Verse 43, the following day when Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip was from, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, and Peter. So all these guys knew each other. They were all fishermen. In fact, Bethsaida was a Jewish city located on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, it was a fishing town, so much so that the name Bethsaida actually means house of fishing. And pretty much everybody made their livelihood on the waters of the Sea of Galilee fishing. That was prim the primary um, job that people had. Of course, guys, as we talk about becoming disciples and this whole section talking about discipleship, it all starts with a person getting saved. And then once we get saved, God wants us to become fishers of men. Well, you have to be saved to, be, to go on to that ministry. So it's all about Jesus fishing for us, using others to witness to us. And then when we get saved, we go out and become fishers of men, fishers of people to bring them to Christ. But let me just finish the chapter. Uh, and we'll make some then final applications about what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. Listen to me. And why it's so important, or let me just say this, why it's the most important thing in life. People, we talk about discipleship as Christians. We know we're, we're disciples of Christ and so on. 
I don't think a lot of Christians understand the depth of what it means, number one, or uh, what is really involved. I mean, when we talk about disciples, as we're going to see in a moment, it's the most important thing in life, being disciples of Christ, containing everything that makes life worth living. You say you're overstating it, aren't you? No, I'm not. We'll see that in a moment. But verse 43, so the following day, Jesus went to Galilee and found Philip and said, you know, follow me. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, it's significant that as soon as Philip decides to become one of Jesus' disciples, in other words, as soon as he becomes a believer in Christ, the first thing he does is go out and find his friend Nathanael and witnesses to him about Jesus, right? To me, guys, that is the greatest evidence that a person is genuinely saved. When somebody walks to the aisle and says, I want to pray to receive Christ, I pray with them and I'm happy, but I don't get overly happy until I see some fruit. All right? And if I just see them out there witnessing for Christ, I get excited. Because you know what? There's a lot of folks that go to church, pray the prayer, and, uh, and, and claim to be Christians, but they have no fruit. And one of the greatest fruits that you'll have is wanting to share your faith with others, wanting to see others come to Christ. And, and so, Philip, we see that in his life immediately. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, Philip wanted to share his newfound joy with someone else. So he went and found Nathaniel, new converts of the best soul winners. His message was simple and to the point. He told Nathanael that he had found the Messiah who had been foretold by Moses and the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth. Actually, his message was not entirely accurate. He described Jesus as being the son of Joseph. Jesus, of course, was born of the Virgin Mary and had no human father. Joseph adopted Jesus and thus became his legal father, though not his real father, end quote. And let me make another correction to what Philip said. He said, we have found him. We, now, it's interesting, kind of humorous. In verse 43, Jesus finds Philip and says, follow me. Now, Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found him. Let me just say this. Paul said in Romans 3.11, we don't find God, he finds us. Jesus is the good shepherd that goes out looking for what? Lost sheep. We were lost. Okay, we don't find God, he's not lost. He goes out looking for us through the Holy Spirit. And you know what? You say, well, yeah, but I, I went to church. I started reading the Bible. Uh, you know, it was me. I was searching for God. Okay, here's what happened. The Holy Spirit was out looking for you. Jesus, the good shepherd, through the Holy Spirit, was calling to you. You didn't hear the voice. You didn't hear your name audibly called, but suddenly you had a desire to go back to church. You had a desire to pick up a Bible and read it. That's what happened to me. Or, you know, you decided to talk to that crazy Christian that worked with been laying tracks on your desk for the last six months. Anyways, what you're doing is you're responding to the call of the Spirit who is drawing you to Jesus. And when you receive Christ, you are now no longer lost. You are found. The point I'm making is, isn't, aren't you glad that God doesn't require us to be theologians before we get saved? That we have all the right answers? Aren't you glad when you come to Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, okay, now I've got a, a hundred uh, uh, question test you have to pass, and then we want to make sure that you've read the certain amount of books that I have uh, authorized that you read and pass that final written exam and so on. You can be a child and have the faith of a child to get saved. 
Now, somebody after first service said, my mother does not want to read the Bible or go to church because she says all I need is the faith of a child. What do you say to that? All you need is the faith of a child to get saved. But God doesn't want you to stay a child the rest of your life. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God wants us to grow, right? In our faith and in the knowledge of the Lord Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm just saying, isn't it wonderful that God doesn't require us to be theologians before we get saved? Just have the faith of a child. You have to have the basics down. Philip had that, like the thief on the cross. He had the basics, right? I'm a sinner. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Boom. Today you'll be with me in paradise. I'm so blessed that the Lord saves, you know, the simple. And just having the basic knowledge of Jesus and who he is and what he did. When Philip says that we have found him that Moses in the law and the prophets spoke about, the the, uh, phrase law and the prophets is a common title for the whole Old Testament, our Old Testament. Of course, it wasn't their Old Testament. They were Jews. It was their Jewish scriptures, what the Jews call today the Tanakh, all right? Now, we have the Tanakh, the Old Testament, next to our New Testament, but, of course, Philip only had the Jewish scriptures, and, um, but we know that the phrase law and prophets is often used of the whole Old Testament. You can find that Matthew 7, 12, Matthew 22, 40, Luke 16, 16, just to name a couple of a few places. But again, Philip's testimony was very simple, very simple. Um, he just declares that Jesus is the Messiah and Savior that was predicted in the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. Listen, guys, there are over 300 prophecies in our Old Testament concerning the Messiah's first coming. Over 300. I'll give you just two. One from Moses, one from the prophet Micah. There's, again, over 300. And uh, I'll just read these to you. Deuteronomy 18, starting with verse 15, where Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. So there's coming a day, Moses said, when God is going to raise up a prophet like me, a deliverer. I'm delivering you from the bondage of Egypt he will deliver you from the bondage of sin and death. And then God goes on to say in, in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like uh, you, Moses, from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of them. In other words, I will hold them accountable in the day of judgment. And then Micah, of course, and we just passed Christmas, this is very uh, well known at Christmas time. But the prophet Micah, in Micah 5, verse 2, said, uh, prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, But you, Bethlehem, in the county of Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, you're not a very big town. Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth, goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So obviously Nathaniel, or um, Peter, I, uh, Peter, I'll get it, Philip, should have got that right away, right? <laughs> Philip knew his scriptures and was, uh, knew the, uh, some of the prophecies, at least concerning the Messiah, and uh, expresses this to Nathaniel. We have found the Messiah, the one Moses and the prophets talked about, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nathaniel, I get the impression, was a good guy. He was a good guy with a sincere heart, but he expresses some honest doubts that anything good, i.e. great, 
could come out of Nazareth, especially somebody as important as Messiah. One pastor summed it up, he said, off the beaten path, Nazareth was forgotten and forsaken economically, unimportant militarily, and insignificant politically, unquote. It was a nowhere town. It was a hick, rural, backwater town. I mean, how could Messiah come from such a place? No doubt Nathaniel's thinking Messiah's got to come from Jerusalem or Hebron or one of the other major cities in, in Israel, anywhere but Nazareth. Just like the Lord to surprise us and do things that are unorthodox, right? Now, guys, at this point, Philip refuses to do something that many new believers engage in. When challenged blind believers they're witnessing to, he refuses to argue with Nathaniel. I mean, how many... Boy, I used to love to argue with people, you know? I mean, I just... I love to argue. I love to prove I was right as a young Christian. One time I argued with a Jehovah's Witness... And I just put this gal in her place. I just ripped her apart doctrinally. And I left that meeting feeling very smug that I had shown her that she was wrong and I was right. And you know what? There are times when God will speak to you in a very clear way, not audibly, but very clear in your heart. You know what the Lord said to me? I've never forgotten this. Phil, you won the argument, but you lost the opportunity. The opportunity isn't to make myself look so intelligent and so, you know, wise the opportunity is to save a soul and i totally blew that with my pride and my ego and god used that to humble me look when i witness the people now you know i don't i don't um it's not about winning the arguments about winning the soul really and so philip refuses to argue with nathaniel and just simply says to him look uh, come and see come and see okay that's you know that's what we need to do today when we witness to people who have doubts. I'm not talking about stubborn, obstinate uh, atheists and all who are, who are blaspheming the Lord, uh, laughing at you, putting you down, putting Christianity down. Uh, then the words of Jesus come into play. Don't cast your, your pearls before the swine. Shake the dust off and move on. I'm talking about somebody who has sincere and honest doubts, who has an open heart but just has questions. Don't argue with them. Just say, come and see. And really, that kind of means invite them to church so they can hear God's word for themselves. And they can see the transformation that he has wrought in all of our lives as his people through his Holy Spirit. Look, as I've said before, people can argue with you about doctrine, but they can't argue with you about a changed life. That's why come and see. I'm not going to argue with you. Is, is Jesus real? Has he made a difference in people's life? Come to my church. We've had ex-drug addicts and alcoholics and people that were involved in sexual sin and all kinds of things. And once they got saved, the Lord delivered them and they're living transformed lives. Hey, look, don't take my word for it. Come and see. That's what we need to do. In John chapter 1, verse 47, we read now, Jesus saw Nathaniel. Philip went and got him. Here comes Nathaniel coming toward him. Instead of him, behold, said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Why? Because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. Hang in there, kid. You're going to see a lot greater things than this. 
Verse 51, assuredly, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now what in the world does that mean? First of all, let me just say this. The reason Nathaniel responded with such amazement, astonishment, and praise for Jesus was because, listen, he was nowhere near where Jesus was when Jesus said, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. I don't know where he was. I get the impression he was a good ways away, a mile more. Philip ran and got him. We found the Messiah. you got to come. And here he's coming to Jesus. Who knows? Again, a mile, two miles. We don't know. Somewhere, obviously, far away from Jesus. And Jesus, I saw you. What? You saw me? Yeah, I saw you under the fig tree. Oh, my God. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Hang in there. All right? You're going to see greater things than these. You can see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus exercised in that a situation, a gift of the Holy Spirit called the gift of the word of knowledge. Now, I don't have time to get into that, uh, get our study on 1 Corinthians 12. We, we talked about the gifts, and that was one of them. Uh, let me just say the gift of the word of knowledge is where the Holy Spirit supernaturally reveals to you a piece of information, a little piece of knowledge that you would have no way of under knowing about unless the Spirit had revealed it. Why would he do that? To get you to pray. Sometimes to get you to confront if God reveals to you something that a good friend of yours is living in adultery, he wants you to pray and then go confront them in love. Or sometimes he'll do it so that we can confront somebody with truth, like Jesus did here with uh, Nathaniel. But guys, listen, don't miss this. In saying this, not only did Jesus tell Nathaniel where he was sitting under the fig tree, he also told him what he was doing under that tree. Okay? The Lord Jesus told Nathaniel that while he was sitting under that fig tree, he was reading from the scroll of Genesis. Now, it would be our Genesis 28 and primarily verse 12. Of course, chapters and verses came much later uh, in the scriptures, okay? A man, man's doing. But uh, obviously, there were the scrolls of these books around had been copied. That's what the scribes did. They copied uh, scrolls, and then people would buy them and so on. And Nathaniel, uh, Nathaniel had gotten a copy uh, of uh, the scroll of Genesis, and uh, he was in chapter 28, our chapter 28, and uh, he was reading about Jacob's ladder. Now, you remember this story when we studied, you've read, read the story, no doubt, but Jacob was the twin brother of Esau who were sons of Isaac. Isaac, by this time, had lost his vision, his sight, he was very old. And so it was time for him to pronounce the blessing upon Esau as the oldest. And he said, before I do that, Esau, will you run out and will you catch me some of that venison that I love and prepare it for me because I'm ready to die. And Esau was the hunter, okay? So he runs out and, and, and is hunting for some, some game. And uh, Jacob was, of course, the mama's boy. You know, mama's boy, he was 70, all right? Uh, you know. <laughs> But they lived a lot longer than today, so maybe 35 by our standards. Anyways, so, you know, Rebecca hears this whole thing and says to Jacob, you better get, I'll, I'll prepare some food quick for your dad. Uh, go in, you know, and, and put on your brother's clothes, and like, so you smell like the field, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and, and trick your father into, into thinking you're Esau so you can pronounce the blessing. We did. Isaac falls for it. And when Esau finds out that, I, that Jacob had, had stolen his blessing, which was a big deal. Esau said, I'm going to kill that guy. As soon as dad dies, he's, uh, this guy, he's toast. He's done. I'm going to wipe him out. Rebecca hears that and says, you better run to your Uncle Laban's house for a couple weeks until things cool down. A couple weeks to 20 years. 
20 years. Her favorite was taken from her for 20 years because of her deception. He's running now, okay? He's, he's afraid Esau's coming after him right now. We know from the passage in Genesis, he covers 40 miles that first day. For him to cover 40 miles, he's running. He's running. He's exhausted, right? He's so exhausted, he just lays down on the ground, out in the wilderness, out in the open, pulls up a rock. You've got to be pretty tired to use a rock for a pillow. Pulls up a rock for a pillow, falls asleep, and has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a ladder standing on the earth, uh, which goes all the way up into heaven. And he sees angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And God standing on, at, top, uh, at the top of the ladder in heaven. Nathaniel's reading this. We know because Jesus said he was reading it. Okay? And I believe that it's probable that Nathaniel, as he's reading this, started thinking, you know, how wonderful, would, how wonderful it would be to have a real ladder that would extend from the earth into heaven where a person could climb up and meet with God. But that's the stuff that dreams are made out of, not reality. Perhaps Nathaniel, being a student of the Jewish scriptures, had Job in mind at this point. Of course, you remember the story of Job. Um, Job was going through the worst trial of his life. And even though he maintained his innocence, his friends kept accusing him of not being right with God. You see, they maintained that Job was experiencing a judgment from God upon his life. And that God only judges sinners. Therefore, in their minds, that Job must be guilty of some sin or wrongdoing against God for him to be going through all this. Their advice to Job was simple. Just plead your case to God, confess your sins, and your problems will be over. Job, uh, Job accused them of being miserable counselors who were unjustly accusing an innocent man of wrongdoing. Then he says to them this, he says, Beside, there is no way I can meet with God and plead my case to him because God is in heaven and I'm stuck here on the earth and there is no bridge, no ladder that exists by which I can climb up into heaven and meet with the Almighty. Now here in John 151, Jesus says that Jacob's dream about a ladder that bridged the gap between heaven and earth was really a prophecy about himself. Jesus, who would bridge the uh, gap between God and fallen sinners. Something that Jesus said clearly in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way to heaven, only way to the Father. Jesus basically saying, guys, I'm the ladder, all right? I'm the bridge between heaven and earth, between God and fallen mankind. I'm the only way to the Father. Look, the only way for a person to have access to and fellowship with God is through Jesus, our great high priest, as the Bible calls him. Guys, as we said when we did our Christmas message, the Latin word for priest is pontifex, which means bridge builder. Bridge builder. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, when he offered himself on that cross, guys, that cross in effect became a way, a bridge, that bridged the gap between that that bridged the gap that sin had opened up. Read Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Sin has divided us from God. Uh, God created man in perfect fellowship in the Garden of Eden. Man and, and uh, God, Adam and Eve sinned, and this gulf opened up between God and man, a big chasm, a gulf that separated them from each other. And that was what the work of redemption was all about, Jesus coming to bridge the gap that sin had opened up, that man could have fellowship with God 
once again. You know, there are those today who believe that it's unfair that God has only provided one way for a person to get saved. I don't know what they're thinking. Why, if God would have provided two ways that would have been better? Or 50 ways or 100 ways? I'm just glad he provided a way, okay? One way. But, but they, they think it's kind of unfair. Unfair, really? How fair was it for an innocent man, Jesus Christ, who never sinned, never violated anything his father said, how fair is it for him to have to die in my place? And a guilty sinner, he died for me and for you. How fair was that? Yet Jesus was willing to go to the cross because he loved us. Others just flat out refuse to believe that there is only one way to heaven. They believe many roads lead to God. You run into these people all the time. Unfortunately, we could deal with they were just Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and others. But I saw a sign or a picture of a church somewhere. Uh, and on the marquee outside, it had these words. Listen, God is too big to be the God of only one religion. Now, that's a very tolerant statement, isn't it? Very deceived statement. That's why Jesus said, beware of, of um, wolves that come to you in sheep's clothing. You know who wore sheep's clothing back then? The ones who took care of the sheep, the shepherds. Beware of pastors who haven't got a clue, who come to you like Christians, but themselves are wolves. They're preying on you with false deception, with false teaching, I should say. Look, God has only provided one mediator. A mediator, guys, refers to somebody who inter intervenes between two, excuse me, two estranged people or parties to bring them together again in peace and reconciliation. Paul said there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only one who can bridge the gap. He is the only one who could die for sin. Why? Because he was virgin born and sin was passed along to the father, to the children. Jesus didn't have an earthly father. His father was God the father. Therefore, he had to be virgin born because original sin did not transfer over to him. He couldn't have died for sinners if he had original sin on his soul. So he became, so God had to become man, the God man. Guys, the path of discipleship is laid out in these last few verses of John 1, and they are as follows as we bring this to a close. First of all, come and see. That's where it all begins, okay? With a desire, certainly, that's obvious, but then with somebody saying, come and see. And primarily the Holy Spirit says to people, you know, come and see. Come, of course, is the invitation itself. It means to make a conscious decision to come and check Jesus out, whatever that means to you. Um, and see for yourself if he is who he claimed to be and if what he taught is true. Then you follow me, he said. Follow me, verse 43. To follow Jesus means to make a decision to commit your life to Christ, to make a directional change in the way your life is going. Very important. In other words, you have to turn around, repent. That's what the word repent really means, to turn around. You're going in one direction, away from God pursuing sin, you repent, turn around, start coming toward God, living a life of obedience. Very important. A person must decide for themselves if they're going to want to believe in, receive, and start following Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They have to decide that. Nobody can force you to be a Christian. 
Nobody can sprinkle you with waters and declare you a Christian. Read John 1, verses 12 and 13. Nobody can do that. We have to be old enough and have enough presence of mind and all. A child can do it, but you've got to be a child that understands the basics. But it has to be a decision that we make to consciously follow Jesus, which means you can't keep going in the same direction. I'm appalled at churches and pastors that basically don't teach repentance anymore. Uh, they believe, first of all, it's, it's not the gospel. I mean, you know, uh, it, it's a work. We don't get saved by our works. Baloney. It's not a work to say, I receive you, Jesus, and I, I'm turning from my sin. Give me the grace to follow you now. That's not a work. That's just confession of faith, basically. But you have churches that are basically telling people, just as long as you pray the prayer of salvation, you can go on and live with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You can go on and live in incentives. God's a God of grace. Well, God is a God of grace. And if we blow it, he'll forgive us if we are sincere and come to him. But that doesn't mean we can go on living the same old life. I mean, you know, you, you, you accept Christ, and you know, it's all about repenting, turning around, and, and living a new life. Now, once you do that, you become a disciple. And here's the culmination. Here's what happens to every disciple in Christ. Verse 50, you will see greater things than these. Guys, I believe as a Christian, our greatest days should always be ahead. Too many Christians are looking back at what God did 30, 40 years ago. Oh, remember the Jesus people days? Great. Wonderful. Calvary was born in the Jesus movement. Awesome. That was 40, 50 years ago. It's time to move on. It's time to get our eyes ahead of what God wants to do today in our lives and through our lives. This is the problem, all right? I believe as Christians, if we have this mindset where every day we wake up and go, today, I want to do, a, do greater things for the Lord, for his, for his name, by his power. You know, not that you're going to every day do something greater than the day before, but if you have that mindset, believe me, you're going to be going in that direction. Like Caleb, right, book of Joshua, Caleb was 80, 85 years old. Caleb, you want to retire? You're, 80, you're 85 years old. Isn't the time to pack it in? I'll tell you what. See that mountain over there where those giants live? I want that for my inheritance. Caleb wasn't ready to retire. He said, I want my greatest battles to be yet future. That's a man that I want to emulate. That's a guy I can look up to. Not some Christian who serves the Lord for a few years and then at 50 retires and plays golf the rest of their life. If we got anybody in this room that's doing that, I'm sorry. I don't know who you are. I'm not, I'm not speaking to anybody personally. The problem with the church is at a time when the saints have already lived their life, raised their kids, and have retired, and now are still very healthy, and they can be really used by God. They're playing golf all day long, or they've retired. Tragic, tragic. Every believer of Christ, if they want to, their eyes are going to be opened and God will show them great and awesome things. He will use them in ways they never thought possible. Jeremiah 33, excuse me, 33, verse 3. God said, come and see. Call to me, I should say. And I will answer you and show you. You'll see great and mighty things which you do not know, which you've never seen before. God is always challenging us to, to, keep, um, to keep saying, Lord, today, will you do in my life greater things for your glory?
Now, guys, earlier I said that becoming a disciple of Jesus, which really means becoming a Christian, is the most important thing in life. Why did I say that? Because Jesus said it, basically, as he went on in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 16. If you're still there, uh, you know, I want to read verses uh, 30, uh, 24 to uh, 26. But remember verse 24, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. All right? Verse 25, Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is he saying? Again, this is talk, the cross means relinquishing control and authority of your life to Jesus. If you don't want to do that, you, you don't have to. We have a free will. You can continue living for yourself right now, but you will lose life, and the idea is eternal life. And any life ministry that God wanted to lead you into right now on the earth. I believe that's part of it. When Jesus said, if you, if you lose your life for my sake, give up authority, let me control you, you will find life. I believe it was not just eternal life. It was life right here on the earth because when you accepted Christ, you entered into eternal life at that moment. It wasn't something you're waiting to enter into into heaven. Ionia Zoe, age abiding or eternal life, as we have said, Zoe is not means life in all of its fullness and blessing. Life in all of its fullness and blessing. You will never know life in all of its fullness and blessing if you have not given your life to Christ. Now, I'm not saying there's not going to be persecution, hard times. I'm just saying. If you want to know the joy of the Lord, if you want to have meaning and purpose, the only way to, to do that is to come and give your life to Christ. Guys, we have just entered into a new year. Well, let me go out on verse 26. For what profit is it to a man or a woman if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, guys, there are so many people who are making this trade, terrible trade, they're trading their eternity for whatever this life can offer right now for a few years. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lost his own soul? I think of these people that reach such fame and fortune on the earth. Guys like Elvis and Michael Jackson and many others who died without Christ. Now, I don't know if Elvis died without Christ or Michael Jackson. I hope they didn't. But if they did... They gained the whole world. They were called the king of pop, the king of rock. And yet, if they lost their own soul, what would that matter? Look, we're done, I promise. Um, we've just entered into a new year. And with it, of course, new hopes that often accompany a new year. You know, I think primarily it's the hope of a, of a, more, of a better and more meaningful life, which is exactly what becoming a disciple of Christ is all about here on the earth. Guys, when Jesus approached men fishing and invited them to become fishers of men, you know what he was doing? He was offering them a life that transcended the temporal and the mundane and offered them a life where they could be used by God to impact people for eternity. Now, you know what? I don't know about you, but I think one of the, one of the things that, that really bogs people down and depresses them is the, is the routineness, the mundaneness of life. They're, they're only living to make money to, to survive and that get up the next day and do the same thing. 
when God wants so much more for our lives. Sure, being a fisherman, making money for your family, putting food on the table, that, that's good stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But God wants to elevate us. He's, Jesus said, look, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I'll give you everything else you need to live on this earth. But don't live at the level of the mundane. Live at the level of the spirit. Because this is the only life worth living. It's the only life that has eternal consequences attached to it. And so I just want to leave you with that thought. I know that, you know, every new year, and some of you have really come through a really rough year. 2017 might have been the worst year of your life. I don't know. Maybe you lost somebody very dear to you, or you got bad news that you have some kind of serious disease, or you lost a job, or something. There's a lot of people that are just like, I just want to be happy. I just want to have some joy. Jesus is going to tell us in John 13 that you'll never have joy in this world if you pursue it as a direct, as a direct pursuit. Joy is always a byproduct of being his disciple and serving him and helping others. We'll talk about that more when we get there. But this is the thing that we need to understand. Discipleship is at the heart of all of it. All of it. Having meaning to life, knowing that someday you're going to spend eternity with the Lord. But right now in the earth that your life has value, it has a purpose, and it goes beyond the mundane. May God give us the grace to really contemplate that this year. We, we really want God to move in a very powerful way uh, in and through this church, in and through our lives. We want our lives to make a difference. I think, I hope, they will. If you just receive Christ as your Lord and Savior and keep drawing close to him every day, I'm telling you, this will be the most incredible year you have ever lived, even though it may not be the easiest year, of course. It'll be the most incredible year you've ever experienced. That's how it is when you are a true disciple of Christ. So may God give us grace that he would do all that he wants to do in and through us this year. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth, of course. But also, Lord, we see in this passage, Lord, you calling men to become disciples. It's easy to just quickly read that and move on to chapter 2. But, Lord, help us to understand when you called these men to be disciples, it was really just a prelude to you calling all of us to be your disciples. And we ask you, Lord, for grace. Many of us in this room, probably most, have received you as Lord and Savior. We are your disciples. But give us grace to be faithful disciples. Give us grace, Lord, to be true disciples, where we serve you with all of our hearts, that you are the focus, that you are the king of our lives, and we only live to honor you, obey you, and serve you. So, Lord, thank you. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.